wanted to get out of my hometown of like Humboldt County, really. And uh, I knew people there. Some people that I had grown up with had gone to UCSC and then come back. And then so I would go down to Santa Cruz with them to visit and I would meet people there. And then when I wanted to really get out of my hometown, it just seemed kind of natural to move there. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're from, um, you're from up North, right? Like Humboldt, Eureka area. So like Santa Cruz isn't a huge leap when it comes to certainly not the lifestyle, I would assume. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was pretty exciting. Actually. There's a lot more going on down there for sure. Mm. Closer to San Francisco. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. It was a lot more going on there. It was great. Was that sort of part of your earnest attempt to actually make a living at this whole music thing? No, not I, when I've moved down there, not at all. I just kind of wanted to leave, leave Humboldt, basically. So at what point was it clear that that was, that music was actually something that you could really do for a living? In quotes, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely in quotes. You know, I think right about the time that, uh, I think when my first record with Drag City, I decided then I, I decided I was going to have to go on tour for so long that I'd have to pretty much quit any job. So I was working at uh, Streetlight Records in Santa Cruz. And then so I just said, all right, guys, I'm going to take off. Maybe I'll be back. And I just haven't really, never went back. Given what you do musically, did it seem like there there would be a market for it at all? <laughs> not at all. Not when, I was, not when I was doing the early records or anything. I mean, not at all. From then to like this month, I'm like, ah, this might be the last month, you know? And then just something weird happens. I'd be like, oh, do you want to do something? Or I don't know. But yeah, every month I'm like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. God, it has to have been like 25 years or, or 20 years at this point. It still yeah. honestly feels that touch and go. Yeah, because it feels like it's slightly like uh, decreasing little by little. And then so, but then always something, I was just talking to somebody like last year, I was like, oh, that's it especially with COVID, I said, oh, and then just weird stuff came up. So now I, I do kind of not even try to predict it. And I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to be a pessimist about it, but I, it would never surprise me if I'm like, nothing is happening. I got I to gotta quit going on tour. But even like I didn't go on tour last year and stuff still kind of worked out with different projects. So I mean, I'll always do music. I just don't know if I'll be able to support myself with it. I think there's a line between being a pessimist and being a pragmatist and there's a certain in order to kind of just survive in the world especially to survive in the world making music there is a certain level of pragmatism that has to take place yeah i try to try to be real about it i think that i've been doing it for so long that there there will always be some little remnant or fossil of something i've done that somebody can pick up you know from like 15 years ago or something they might not know what i'm doing now but somebody will hear something from a while ago and think oh maybe i could ask this guy to do this or something you know something like that what were those things that came through over the past year that kept you afloat well i started like working on library music a little bit for kpm sort of it's kind of production music so there's a history of doing um these things called library records back from like the sixties and where people just do music specifically to be used in production. And whether it's uh, uh, someone could use it for a documentary, a movie, commercial, like licensing. Yeah. That sort of thing, you know? So that just kind of 
came up. And then after that came up, then my label Drag City said, oh, well, we'll license it from the guys who like to license it. So, you know, weird stuff starts to move around. I tend to think of stuff like that. Stock is the right word, but that, that sort of licensable, almost like bed music, um, you know, as being something that would be almost kind of purposefully generic. Yeah, I guess if if Drag City is sort of picking it up to do their thing with it, then, then there must be. That's why I really like it. It was a real challenge, and as someone who, because I'm somewhere in between, you know, an idiot and still hold on to some kind of punk rock ideals, I've I've fully turned down commercials before. People have asked for music for commercials, and I've said no, even though it seems like it doesn't matter. Like I have so many contemporaries that are doing, but I just never did. But this excited me because it wasn't using something from my catalog. And and then the, my idea behind it was I was actually going to throw everything into it and make it as much of mood music and really something that could be a six organs record. I wasn't going to just try to make, make it generic. So I was tr- trying to pull the old flipperoo on it. You know what I mean? Like, and that was the challenge to see if I could make something that was, you know, just as emotionally fulfilling or whatever as as a normal record are companies looking for something generic just from the standpoint of you know i assume that they want something that can kind of disappear into the background that doesn't sort of detract from whatever it is they're doing or selling yeah i guess so um i don't think a lot of people used it i got the i get the reports i think i think like a fishing show used it or something it had to do a bit with the label KPM was uh, that I did it for is one of the original library library labels, and they I think the stuff they used to do from the '60s and '70s and these jazz records they ended up getting sampled a lot, and then that sort of thing got kind of hip in a way the older stuff and it's being reissued, and there's a guy who works there um, a guy named Paul and. I think his idea was, oh, I want to make contemporary library music kind of as hip now as when we look back. So he's been asking more indie underground people to do it. I think you'll probably start seeing more, yeah, more underground artists, you know, say, oh, I did a library record because it's fun to do as well to take part in that sort of trajectory, you know. Can something like that be fulfilling in the same way that, you know, making a record is? It totally was. I mean, that was my idea was that I would not come at it, you know, thinking, hey, this would be a maybe a toilet bowl commercial could use this song. You know, although that's always in the back of my head. I can't stop it. I I like that. Maybe I'm a bit of a masochist and I thought like, oh, I'm going to put as much into this music as possible. And maybe it'll end up on a toilet bowl commercial. I can't, you know, who cares? Toilet bowl cleaner commercial, you know? I like that challenge. I thought it was pretty fun. I mean, it sounds like you weren't just doing a six organs record in the guise of library music. For you, what's the key differentiator in terms of what the actual end product is? It's funny because a lot of six organ stuff has, um, there's a lot of dissonance in it. And I I usually obscure any sort of pretty melodies or anything like that with some sort of harsh noise. So basically, I just didn't obscure anything. So it it really is almost like the skeleton of most six organ stuff, but without me throwing a bunch of stuff to throw people off the trail of prettiness. You know what I mean? So that was sort of the idea behind it as well. You know, if people 
think, think like, oh, I like six organs, but you know, I like the I like the really pretty stuff. But then I, it's like, oh well, oh no, I did that record. It's just it's a library record. It's not a six organs record. That was kind of the idea behind. It. What's your sense of what that impulse is to to, to mess up the prettiness? To like, as you said, throw people off the scent. I don't know. My partner says that. Um, my partner is always saying that I do that. So I'm kind of picking up, I'm, I don't, I'm not so self-aware of it, except for she's, she tells me, she's like, you know, you always you write these pretty songs and then, then you'll like sing about something horrible <laughs> or, uh, you know, um, do something where it's not so easily listenable. I, I didn't even realize I was doing that. So after she kind of told me that I became a little more self-aware of it. I get a sense that a lot of sort of the impulse bet- behind punk rock, for example, is, um, almost a fear of being too earnest, you know, almost a fear of just being too upfront about your feelings. And, and, you know, perhaps there's a sense of like shrouding a little bit because it, you know, otherwise it's really easy to sort of come off as being, I guess, a, a little too cliche. Hmm. I can see that. You can see that. And so I'm trying to think of if there's any punk that, I don't know, but then, well, I can't really speak of emo because I don't really listen to it. But I would imagine. Sure, I mean it's it's a bad example because a lot of punk is extremely earnest, but but in in a different way. Right? I guess that sort of also plays in, into the impulse of you know this that you were alluding to before the idea of kind of of selling out, which is just generally a non-existent it concept yeah, at this point. <laughs> Nobody thinks in terms of that. I mean, when you know once. Once you hear Henry Rollins say, you know, like 10 years ago, like, I think, I think people should sell out, should sell to commercials or something. Then you're like, what? Oh, I guess there just is no, that just doesn't exist anymore. Henry Rollins is like, is a super interesting example too. Cause like, you know, you'll be watching some like TV procedural cop show or something and Henry Rollins will show up. So Henry Rollins like has his own concept, I think that, that is, that is independent of, of the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. He's a, he's a cool guy. He loves music. So is part of that impulse that that hesitancy that you've had in the past to, you know, for example, license one of your existing works? Is it that you sort of have you have a specific idea what you're making this music for? I just didn't want if anyone liked a song, I would think the disappointment of seeing it on a commercial, even if it's just one one person, it's just kind of like, what are you doing it for, you know? Um, but then maybe they wouldn't care. So maybe nobody cares. Anymore. I mean, that was a long time ago that I was turning stuff down. <laughs> that was a long time ago that people were asking. So, uh, you know, it, who knows if somebody did now, I'd be like, ah, whatever, who cares? Like, or maybe not. I don't know. It's a weird thing. I think about it. So you feel like that moment in time is kind of past. I don't know. Maybe not. Like I'd stop, like I said, like said before, like I always think something's going to end and then something happens. So I, I don't know. Do you get the sense that, to some degree, the hexadesic stuff is an attempt to kind of mess up the prettiness for you. No, uh, I, and also like my partner's analysis of of, of doing <laughs> that, where I have something pretty and mess it up. I don't necessarily agree with because I always saw six organs as trying to merge two different worlds. Not so much there's a messed up world on top of a pretty one, but just I mean it started from listening to just different types of records and thinking, I wish I could listen to both these records at this. I wish there was a record that sounded like Van Morrison's Veden Fleece and uh, I don't Dead Sea's Harsh 70s Reality at the same time. I wish there was a record and then thinking like, well, maybe I'll make that record. I mean, I never have, but that was sort of, I've never 
you know, been able to create something that, that good, but that was the idea behind it. Like, what if I wish there was a record that could capture both of these moods at the same time. So that's how I always thought of six organ sound world of kind of combining these things, not so much of, but that was her analysis was that you make pretty stuff and then you, you know, you kind of ruin it. So what was the, what was the impulse? There was, well, one of the ideas was that there's sort of a trend with there's sort of a trend with composers to take ideas from more folk musicians or folk ideas or you know um, maybe like t- Bartok taking ideas from Hungarian peasants or something. And um, I just thought, well, what maybe what if maybe the folk guys will take some ideas from some composers without trying to pretend like we're composers at all. So just and then so then taking ideas of just um, more uh, some 12 tone ideas that are more Schoenberg ideas or and then taking ideas of um, just chance operations, post John Cage chance operations. Okay, so like the I Ching sort of. Yeah, exactly. And then saying, well, maybe we'll borrow some of this for us folk guys. That was that was kind of the big idea behind it. I got the sense that it was him trying to sort of get out of his own head and get out of his own way. Mm. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, did you ever, have you listened to those radio shows with him and Morton Feldman? They did about five radio shows. It's really just them talking and bullshitting. And I, I don't know, maybe they're on mushrooms. Cause I know, I know Cage was into mushrooms, but you're like, you, you listen and you're like, they're laughing a lot right now. Maybe they're, you know, kind of start to think maybe they're on mushrooms or something. What and, era would that be? I think it was early 60s it was recorded. I have to look. It's on um, archive.org. Yeah, so. but the, the mushroom thing makes sense or even maybe maybe acid at that point. Yeah, um, they're really entertaining. It's just like a couple guys talking about, they're just kind of riffing on ideas. It's not even so much composer stuff, but um, yeah, it's, it's very entertaining. I sort of came at being interested in, in the John Cage thing through through Brian Eno and, you know, and, and, and clearly his, his deck of cards was sort of inspired by that same idea, I guess, developing a set of constraints in order to be more productive in the creation of, of music. I mean, is that, is that the sense that you have to kind of set your own parameters in order to really sort of sit down and start making something in earnest? Um, there's definitely a, an idea of, yeah, working with parameters. Um, yeah. Uh, um, Eno's cards are, are fairly, they're definitely more conceptual. And then the hexatic system is more, um, has more to do with the notes and a little less conceptual. Like it gives you a series of notes. So it gives you very specific parameters rather than uh, parameters more like concepts. Um, but uh, yeah, that was definitely an idea behind it. Is it something that's been useful for your music generally, or is it really just something that kind of exists for those specific sessions? Yeah, it's like a different part of the brain for me. I People have asked that since I did the hexatic stuff, if it influenced other ideas and it's so compartmentalized in my brain that it hasn't, I mean, it probably has in some way, but it's like, that's like a different space that I can 
that I go into and work in sort of this hexatic space and then come back and work on other stuff. Do you find though that just generally when it comes to sort of sitting down and making music that there is an attempt to kind of get out of your own head to kind of get out of your own way? I mean, that's the biggest obstacle, you know, is being able to get out of your head. I find that the older I get, the harder it is to get out of my head and leave stuff behind and and my to-do list of mundane things it's getting harder for sure it reminds me of a few years ago i thought i would start playing dungeons and dragons again like i did when i was a kid and um found the books used and stuff and some people were like all right let's get into it all right i'll dm let's do it i started working on it and i was just like man i i I can't get out of my head enough to play this game. It was a total like Winnie the Pooh situation. Like I need Winnie the Pooh to come around or something. You know what I mean? I was like, I was like, Oh my God, I'm an adult. I can't get out of, I can't stop thinking about how the, I don't know, faucets leaking and I need to fix that tomorrow. Like couldn't do it. So it's a little bit like that. I'm noticing with music, like I'm finding it harder to, to escape. How does something like the past year impact your ability to make music? Um, It's funny. I get just as much inspiration, but it doesn't last. It won't last for more than a minute or two. So I get just as many ideas. I think, oh, that would be cool. What if I should should do that? And then in a minute or two, I just think like, ah, whatever. And then I can't keep it. I can't sustain it. What about you? Have you noticed anything like that before with inspiration and doing stuff? I went through some pretty heavy depression over the past year. I was dealing with some health issues on top of everything else. That on top of the sort of the, the state of the world, I, I just, I went, you know, went through a pretty dark period, dark depression and found that not only was I not motivated to, I'm a writer by trade. Not only was I not motivated to write, but I also had a period where I just wasn't even able to listen to music right couldn't derive joy out of the the stuff that i usually consumed it was pretty dark there for a while did you go to different stuff or was there just nothing to listen to there was a period of nothingness and then and then i found my way again actually through it through instrumental music mm. you know which is which is actually maybe relevant to you and and to what you do um you know i've, I've talked to a lot of people who just generally who writers specifically who tell me that they can't write when listening to certainly hip hop, but just music with words in general, because they find it to be super distracting. I found I, I got really into ambient music a lot over the, and then, and then post rock and then kind of worked my way up to sort of oh, be right. able to listen to whatever, but you know, certainly, um, with writing and inspiration and how were you able to deal with that last year? I mean, part of it is just that I, I, I have to for my job, <laughs> you yeah. know, part of yeah, it, part yeah, of, yeah. again, it gets back to this or the pragmatic thing again of like, you know, I live in New York city. Um, I yeah. have to pay my rent writing for a living. So yeah, I didn't really have the luxury of not being able to work for an extended period of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have to imagine on your ends when touring is, you know, such a big, I I assume is a pretty key part of your revenue stream when that just completely goes away. I mean, that must be, that must be terrifying. It was, yeah, not being able to tour is a bit, I had, I feel very lucky in that in 
November of 2019, so a few months before everything kind of went down, I went on a living room tour, um, which was the first time I'd done that in a, in a long while. And it was so, so amazing and so much fun to remember to do that. And actually, I remember being in Santa Cruz, seeing amazing shows in living room. And that was one of the inspirations. I was like, oh, man, I haven't done that in so long. I've seen so many good shows in Santa Cruz. Um, and, uh, and um, yeah, I was just thinking about a show with, like, Little Wings in a living room. Um Seeing little, little and, and I might have been there. I I saw them at a few. I was just gonna ask. Yeah, I wonder if we, I forget what that house was. Is it possible they played with Entrance at one point? Well, Entrance played with Devendra. I was at that show. Yeah, yeah. Seeing good shows in Santa Cruz reminded me to go on that tour, and and so I have a bit more of a positive, um, sort of a positive outlook on the future. Because although it's super bummer that cool places are closing down, I know that there will always be like a community and some sort of network and people will always want to see music and living room shows are great. So maybe, I mean, it's pretty hard to do if you're really thrashing metal band with like three guitar players and I feel a little more positive about it. You're in Western Mass now? I'm actually back in Humboldt. When did that happen? Last year. I moved back last year. Just to be closer to family? Yeah, exactly. I've met so many people on the road. I was like, what are you doing? They're like, I'm moving back home. And I was like, ah, what are you doing? I'm moving back home. <laughs> and I was like, and then, yeah, the folks, you know, I was like, ah, maybe I'll just, you know, go back, be closer, help them out on some things. Obviously, also talked to a lot of people over the past year who said they were moving back. But, you know, in a lot of cases, it seemed to at least in theory, be temporary, you know, like, especially since I'm in New York, there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm going to go home and kind of write it out there and come back when it's all over. But it sounds like this is a permanent or semi-permanent relocation for you. For now, I didn't, yeah, I mean, I got my own place. I didn't move in with my parents, which I don't know. I don't know how that would be. But but I moved back into the area. My sister's here too. Is there a sense in... 2021 that you're able to do what you do from from basically anywhere uh yeah i mean i've, I've felt that for a while that's why so after santa cruz i moved to oakland and then san francisco and then seattle and then western massachusetts and then hartford connecticut so and then back here why so many moves i don't know i just it's weird i would just move I'd never had a problem with moving, going somewhere new. I think probably, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I moved back because I kept moving because I was like, ah, I don't know about this place. I'm going to go to another place. And after you live in so many places, you realize every place is good and every place is bad. So you just kind of got to deal with the bad. Every place is good and every place is bad. I mean, obviously there's truth to that, but some places are better suited to some people than, than others. Right. I mean, it's, there are, you know, there are places that are objectively good for people who. Yeah, for sure. I assume that when Comets was still more of a going concern that there was some, that that was kind of keeping you at least in a sort of a general location, right? There's a difference between being a solo artist and being in a band. 
Yeah. I mean, Comets would practice in San Francisco twice a week. So when Ethan lived in Santa Cruz and I lived in Santa Cruz, we would take turns driving up to San Francisco. And then, you know, Ethan moved up to Oakland first and then driving up to San Francisco twice a week from Santa Cruz gets a little rough. Um, so it's just easier to move to Oakland. That's where Ethan was living. So was it that, that sort of official announcement of, I guess, what at least at the time was an extended hiatus that kind of freed you to move wherever you wanted? Huh. That's, I think I moved, I can't remember how that lined up. I think we were, I moved after that. Yeah. But yeah, I think we had decided to kind of go on a break for a bit. And then I moved up to Seattle. It's kind of one of those breaks, like go on a break a bit. And then it like, you wake up one morning and it's been like, you know, 15 years, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and Flashman, um, the bass player, moved down to Los Angeles. And then, um, so we were really spread out on the West Coast. Because I think, you know, he thought we're taking a break and he always wanted to move to L.A. And then I moved really far away to the East Coast. And then, um, yeah. But now actually Ethan moved back here as well. So now I actually see Ethan more than ever. Um all the time because he just moved back to Humboldt. That's exciting, right? The, the the choices that you make musically are kind of based on access that you have to collaboration with others. Um, yeah, probably. I think when I was on the East Coast, we still got together for a one six organs record. Well, our the Comets guys got together. Um, I. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I've had different. Usually, I just ask yeah i think it'll be i mean to answer your question yeah it'll be exciting because we're closer i don't know if we'll play music together um he's pretty busy and i'm pretty busy and uh it's nice kind of not to worry about doing music so much i'm i'm sure we'll jam and have fun and stuff like that you know what is sort of the process of that of the early stage of collaboration and 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 at what point does it like really turn into something more serious and move out of the confines of just kind of screwing around and jamming with somebody. Yeah. It's weird. Cause you know, I don't like to jam. That's another thing. My partner makes fun of me. Like my partner loves to jam. Now, I'm not a big jammer. I like to have a purpose. So like, oh, what are we doing? You got a song. All right. Well, anyone, do, does everybody know what we're doing here? Cause I don't want to just go in and jam. Um, I mean, I do. You two don't just sit around the house and and, and we jam. never jam. No. no, we never we never jam. I mean, he makes fun of me a lot about that. I mean, we've done projects together, but I don't like to jam very much. Um, eh, I mean, it's okay. Um, but in terms of collaboration, collaborations are funny because if I always notice with collaborations, each person kind of wants. The problem with collaborations is each person kind of wants to do the music that the other person does in a way, you know, so they don't really want to do what they do, but the other person wants to do the music that they do. And it, it takes a while to sort of level out and figure out how, how that's going to work. If they just wanted to do the music that they do, then they wouldn't bother yeah. collaborating with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so it's two ways doing that both ways. So that's the problem with collaboration. It's, it's the problem, but it's also the the opportunity, right? I mean, because because you were getting at this before when you were talking about the kind of the sort of abstract idea behind 
Six Organs, which was taking these two divergent musical styles and attempting to meet in the middle. And I mean, isn't that, that, I, that at least is the result of a, of a successful collaboration, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, it's, I, maybe I shouldn't say it's the problem with collaboration, but it's the challenge of collaboration is to find that middle point where people, or sometimes you just realize like, Oh, this person kind of wants to do, what I do, or maybe that person realizes, oh, they want to do this kind of music and they don't want to change. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a directly meet in the middle, but the challenge is to figure out what each person is going to do in their place in the collaboration. You do have collaborations that fall under the the Six Organs banner. What does collaboration look like there? I mean, is it still, is there still a certain sense of, that you are kind of absolutely running the show? I'm a really bad band leader. So I just kind of give the idea and I just say like, this is kind of what we're going to go for. And then hopefully the person, you know, and hopefully it works out. And if they work out, we do it for a while. And if it doesn't, then this is terrible, but I'm much uh, more comfortable with being like, "Eh, maybe we will work together. You know, it's like, Oh no, I know I didn't give you any directions or tell you what to do, but no, this, this is over. You know, I just, I I don't like to tell people what to do. So it's, it's best if just kind of, and, but some people like my friend, Rob Fisk, who I've known forever, whenever he plays bass in six organs, it's like, it's incredible. It's, I, I can't believe how, I don't know how he just, he inspires me so much when he plays. So there's stuff like that, but six organs isn't usually so much, collaboration as it is just trying to get into that six organ space so but i have collaborated with other people in term um i just been called Rongda, and that's a little more collaboration that's with this guy chris corsano and uh this guy sir richard bishop and that's a little more collaboration we're all trying to find like a middle place with um what we do there and i'm trying to think of other collaborations i've done i'm doing i'm working on a few right now so that's why that idea of collaboration is on my mind you mentioned as a band leader, you're, t- you're, you're telling people sort of what the, what the idea is. I think idea is the word that you use. And, and you also said idea in the context of inspiration. When it comes to making a piece of music, what, is, what, what, what does an idea mean exactly? You know, I know that's like a really abstract question, but like when, when you approach somebody and say, hey, you know, we're making this track, what's an example of like an idea that you would give somebody? I guess it depends on the collaboration for right now. Um, so I'm kind of working with three different people, like straight up, just, I don't know what we're going to call it. It's just, we're working. And one of my friends, uh, so like I'm working, right. I'll just mention one, like my, I have a friend named Brian Sullivan who used to do a band called Mouthus and we're, we're doing, we're kind of working together right now. And just sending files back. And so that collaboration is starting to form where we're both doing stuff that neither one of us has ever done before, but we've always wanted to do. And since there's no expectations, we're doing a lot of experimentation and then finding out how we can work together in that way, kind of with loops and guitars, but harshness and sequencers and stuff like that. So so that's been really fun because we're—I feel like we're both doing stuff that neither one of us has done before, and we're kind of trying to egg each other on. So, and then I'm collaborating with another guy that I have worked with before and played in his band, 
And so I know, and that's more me just, just doing what I do with acoustic guitar and he's just doing vocals over it. So that's easy. Cause then we both kind of, we're just playing our own parts. So those are two that are kind of totally separate, different ways to work together, but it just, um, yeah. Figuring out how to do it. Is that remote collaboration? Is that a product of the pandemic or is that something you've been doing for a while? Uh, I've been doing remote collaboration for a while with people. Um, but the first one was this project I did called August born. And I was actually did that in Santa Cruz. And, um, Actually, do you remember that uh, hip-hop band, The Moonies, in Santa Cruz? I do, yeah. Yeah, so Rob, who was in The Moonies, had a little studio, and I worked with Rob at Streetlight Santa Cruz, and when I needed to record, I didn't have any recording equipment, so I recorded this whole psych folk record with this Japanese psych folk artist by going over to Rob's house from The Moonies, and I would go into his studio, and we would do stuff. And I'd say, Rob, I want to do this. And he would just record everything because he had a really cool studio. And then I would say, all right, all right, give me some history on some underground hip hop. And then I'd sit down, you know, and then he would like school me on some stuff. And we'd be like, all right, see you later, Rob. And we would, that's how I recorded collaborations back then. Rob would really help me out. Rob was great. Now I have my own stuff at home that I can work with. I mean, you were ahead of the curve because that would have been like close to 20 years ago now and people aren't really remotely collaborating at least for the most part in the same way that they are now yeah we did it in a very funny way in which i would one of us would record on a cdr and we would send it to each other and we wouldn't even multi-track it we would just record right over the top of what the other person did and then send that cdr back so when it came to do the record there's nothing to mix it was you couldn't mix anything there weren't individual tracks it was just all baked into it and then so we just sent it off to a mastering engineer and he just mastered it and said well this is this is the best i can do and then that became the record it's kind of risky right i mean you're you're recording directly over it you, you know there's not a lot of room for error or something like that it sounds like yeah it was really fun i mean it was a lot of experimentation and um we i mean i didn't know it was going to come out as a record at the time we were just doing it for fun and um we had a funny thing we would do where we we along with recording the sound over the top of each other, it started with me sending him a picture of me, like a Polaroid. And then when he sent it back, he had Photoshopped the Polaroid of him holding up the Polaroid. And then I took that and it was just a series of, we have this series on top of the CDRs for the cover as they were being sent back and forth. We would do these Photoshops of us on top, on top, on top of each other, which kind of meme like nowadays. But um, yeah, it was a really fun project. His name was Hiroyuki Usui. Yeah, it's awesome. Do you think that potentially a project loses something when it is more serious, when it is something that you definitely know is coming out for a record? I mean, it sounds like you were you captured something in that collaboration because you didn't know anyone was going to listen to it, that you could really just sort of do it for the sheer joy of making music. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't make a presumption that uh, something would necessarily be lost because you think it's going to be on a record. I think there's probably a lot of great records that people knew that. You know, obviously they're, they're great records. I, I guess I, I just sort of wonder if, you know, when, when you start to do something before it becomes a career, hopefully in theory, you're doing it because it's something that you're just getting sheer joy out of, you know, like I, I know, like for me, for example, I started writing for a living because it was something that like, you know, that I knew that I was good at, but also just something that I like just really enjoyed the process of. Before I was podcasting, I was a, I was a KZSE guy. So, I, you know, I did radio for a long time and it was something that, that I just really enjoyed. The math changes when something becomes a job, right? You know, when, when something becomes 
serious, something you're doing for a living. I mean, I assume that it can sort of be hard to recapture some of that just initial joy. As somebody who doesn't really, as you said before, doesn't really jam with people in, in that way, are you still able to get that same sense of joy that you did when you first started making music? Oh, yeah. I mean, nowadays, it's probably a little different with music because I can just hit record and on anything I do and not think like, oh, this is going to be used for something. It's But I can have a document of it, erase it. And it doesn't seem as I can still or I can pretend like I'm not recording at the same time. Can you pretend like you're not recording? It's pretty tricky, but um, no, I can't. You caught me in a lie. There's no way I could do that. <laughs> it's like this. This is this is me recording. Record. God damn it. Hit stop. Re-record. Nope. Nope. It's normally like that. You know, just stop. Redo. Stop. Redo. Stop. Redo. Stop. Redo. Do you make a lot of music that just never that you that you don't put out into the world? Um. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that I do that that is for fun. That is not very good. That I don't think anyone would want to listen to. And maybe, you know, I don't think anyone needs to hear my electronica EDM records, you know, that I that I record at nine o'clock at night while I'm watching TV and think like, oh, yeah, I like this kick drum. Yeah, it needs a little needs a little more needs a little more bass. I don't think anyone needs to hear that record. What's the impulse behind that specifically? Or I heard an interview, I think you were talking about sort of going back and listening to some of the industrial music that you used to listen to when you were younger and, and I guess sort of messing around with that a little bit. Is it an attempt to kind of get outside of your, your comfort zone? Um, no, I think it's more just have fun. A lot of times it's a challenge too. And then if you, to see if you can do something, to see if you can make a certain sound, and it always comes back. You always learn something. Even if, if I'm trying to make a genre of music for myself for fun, even if I don't uh, ever let anyone listen to it, or even if I erase the track immediately, it's always a learning experience for something that I can use later on. Is there an example of something that's just started off completely on a lark? Like, you know, the EDM stuff specifically, it sounds like you had absolutely zero expectation that you were going to put that out in the world. And that was, that was just fine. And is there an example of something that sort of started like that and grew into something that you felt comfortable releasing? I don't know. You know, there's some tracks on a new record that started off with me just singing into the computer in the kitchen in the middle of doing nothing and just thinking, oh, here's a melody. I'm just going to sing into it, thinking it was just going to be a melody. Later, I just ended up using those vocal tracks and building a song around it. What was it about them that really sort of transcended that initial just screwing around? I think I kind of just liked the mistakes in it a little bit, not being able to hit certain notes, the tiredness. It's hard to pretend like you're tired. You know, there was a certain sense like that, you know, <laughs> like, I'm going to try to sing like I'm exhausted. Like on that last one, it comes off a little much, a little too much affect, you know? So it's like, I'll just use the original. What was the impulse behind wanting to sound tired on the record? Oh, well, I mean, like when I sang the original one, I was, I was think I was kind of tired or something. There was just this like, maybe because I didn't think I was going to be using it. There was just this non-direct sort of laziness to the, to the delivery when I was just singing right into the computer. And when I tried to recreate that, it just sounded fake. So it didn't work. And when if I tried other stuff, I was like, ah, I'll just use the original. You weren't purposely singing when you were tired the first time, but the, it came out that way and it just sounded 
you listen back to it and you're like, oh no, this is the way it should sound. It should sound like I'm tired. Yeah. I mean, I probably could have nailed it if I wanted to spend all day trying to recreate a sound that I had already done with slightly better fidelity. Because the whole part of part of recreating it would also be to make it sound like I'm not trying to recreate something, which is the hard part as well. So I was like, ah, I'll just use the original. There was an accidental quality to your vocal delivery that you felt like really ended up fitting well into the music that you were trying to make. I think so. I think that happens with a lot of people who are recording though. You know, there's constantly, you know, the Neil Young, take the first take, et cetera, kind of thing. I don't necessarily, I think a lot of that, I think, well, I don't know about a lot, but a good bit of that is mythology as well. I try not to fall into those mythological traps, but sometimes sometimes they're real. I was reading an older interview that, that you did, and I think the interviewer, suggested that you were uh, a spiritual spiritual person which is you know certainly certainly an impression that i had gotten just based on your music generally and uh some of the ideas around it and some of the things that you've talked about but you really this is you know from a number of years ago probably 15 years ago but you really pushed back on the idea that you were a spiritual person and i think you you said no actually i'm not spiritual i'm a nihilist and i'm wondering like <laughs> well which is a great response. Was that was that in the moment, or I mean, is no, there truth I, to that? You know, there's certain, uh, I, would, I would say, there's a certain, there's a certain form of nihilism which is quite spiritual in itself, anyway. So it depends on how. I mean, that's you know, I could say that, but I think it's hard when somebody says that because the words spiritual is so loaded it's so culturally loaded you have to ask the person so i'm just saying back then you know it's an easy thing to be like oh and it's so uh you know you hear if you hear somebody with acoustic guitar or you know so it's 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 a very easy thing to project on somebody or to it, it falls into it's very easy to say that about somebody sure and you're from humboldt and you lived in santa cruz and like you were you know you were very much exposed to that sort of like post 60s post 70s hippie culture that's very pervasive up and down the coast right and exactly i mean if somebody says like oh you seem spiritual well what do you mean by that it's like oh it seems like you like to shake a tambourine around and listen to grateful dead i'm like well no i'm not that i'm not I'm not spiritual. You kind of have to ask me like, well, what, what do you mean by spiritual? Or do you just mean, it's, it's like the word mysticism as well. People say like, oh, it's very mystic. And you have to say like, well, what is your definition of mysticism? There are different ways to look at mysticism. Do you, do you, do you call anything that is out of the material realm mystic? Is that your idea of mystic? Or is your mysticism more narrow and defined and you think of mysticism as, as, having communion with a godhead, like that sort of mysticism, which is different than just, oh, well, it's not a material thing. So when there's these culturally loaded words, sometimes you can ask the person, what do you mean? And then sometimes it's easy to be like, I'm just a nihilist. I mean, back then I was, back then I was, I didn't like to be pigeonholed. Yeah, exactly. So I'm a lot nicer now. You know, I'm not such a... feels like a reactionary thing to say. And I think you're kind of getting that that you were saying it because it was a reactionary thing to say. Or is there truth to it? Is there truth that I'm a nihilist? No, I don't think I'm a nihilist. You don't think you're a nihilist? No. Do you think that by your definition of spirituality that you're a spiritual person? By my own definition? I don't know if... I mean, I don't know if I have a specific definition of 
spirituality. We could say we could say that I just don't like that word spiritual spiritual. I and mean, this is why it's something that that I'm interested in and this is why it's something that like I've always that that I might have applied that word to you is that I tend to think of spirituality in terms of like a seeker of of somebody who is, you know, constantly trying to find deeper meaning through what through what whatever means, you know, through, you know, for some people it could be like drugs for other people it could be you know maybe it's religion or or whatever you would consider mysticism or for some people maybe it's music and i and i've i've gotten the sense at very least you're a seeker i like that definition and by your definition i would say okay you do consider yourself to be sort of a a seeker then uh i mean i don't think i have everything figured out so part of it is that you know i i like the idea of music as sort of as transcendence yeah, you know, and I, I think that plays into a lot of the music that you that you make. Thanks. I mean, uh, that's nice of you to say. I mean, it's nice. Yeah, I think the problem I have with it is, I mean, not not problem with anything you've said, but a problem I I have with generally. I think, it's I think it's a role that a lot of musicians play to say I'm a mystical dude or I'm an occult you know dude or lady, and I'm like look at me, I have answers or something. And so, and often those people are called spiritual or this. And so from the very beginning, I've, that's what, that's the only reason why I really reject that sort of thing is because, yeah, it's a character, it's a role that I see people play. And I don't want to, I don't really want to participate in that as much. Maybe the, maybe the issue with it is that there's an assumption that if a person is spiritual, that they've got some sort of answer, that they possess some information that, right, that you don't right. possess. And that just sounds like, it sounds like a lot of responsibility. You know? <laughs> yeah. Unless you're willing to be like a cult leader or something, it's a lot yeah. of responsibility to say, I have all, I, I have this next level information that, that yeah. you don't possess. Exactly. And, and that and that said, I think there are some musicians who are definitely seekers and spiritual. I mean, from John McLaughlin and his whole thing. And even, you know, if I saw another guitar player who consistently had to wear white on stage and I would be like, I don't know about that guy who says he's so spiritual, but, you know, John McLaughlin will be like, all right, give you a you know, you get a pass. So there's, I'm, you know, I have a constant judge in my brain too. So I don't, I'm not going to say, especially in public who I think is or isn't spiritual, but there's definitely sure. people who, I, well, I can't say more who is. I mean, someone like Avon Kang, um, I think is incredibly spiritual player, Dan Higgs. Um, so there are definitely people out there uh, that even you can tell in liner notes or in their own music what they do that I would I would say are spiritual and seekers. Um, so I don't think it's a bad thing if for musicians like that. I just think it's so easy to play that character that I try not to play that character. Sure, I, I think the interview is I think it's from like 2006, and you know we were talking about sort of the kind of early days of comets and, and six organs. So you know, oh yeah, 2006. Be- I might I may have been a nihilist in 2006. There were a lot of drinking back then, so I could see on a if I was caught on a particularly uh, dark night. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> what was going on in 2006 that might have made you a nihilist? <laughs> no, I, just, I don't know, man. Maybe it was like after a weird show or something. Um, no, I think to that 2006, I was pretty happy. Maybe, I, I think when I first moved to Santa Cruz, I was probably definitely more of a nihilist. Was it just like an angry young man kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Angry young man, you know, angry young man and um, that sort of thing. 
But um, yeah, I th- whatever interview uh, that was, I was pr- I definitely just being a contrarian. You know what I mean? That was probably probably just that thing I was saying where I was trying not to present myself as a certain thing. Part of what I was getting at too, though, is do, do you feel like in the intervening, you know, decade plus, do you feel like you've got anything more figured out? <laughs> I thought you could say, do you feel like you got anything more to say? <laughs> Which would be amazing. You said that. So you've done a lot of stuff. Do you, are you still going to continue? I mean, come on. So are you done making music? Is this your final record? <laughs> be great <laughs> you, you look at some people who who do that and you know you can kind of point to them and say like yeah that dude or lady or non-binary person has something figured out that they didn't before like they really they really got to something else they really got to some some higher meaning or you know maybe they like to some degree but they found some of the answers they were looking for and, and do you feel like at this point that you've gotten maybe a, a little bit closer at the very least like it's clear that you've mellowed out to some degree <laughs> I, say, I say that as a compliment oh, like by it. the way i like it i like it thank god i was like oh my god uh, yeah you're wearing a snoopy cap for god's sakes i am wearing a snoopy cap i have mellowed out i just stole this uh from my partner as well it's a great hat yeah yeah I, I just stole it yesterday although it's very dangerous because it's white which it's not going to be white for probably more than two more days but but i feel like I'm in a different, going in a different direction than I was probably 15, 20 years ago. But I don't think I really have anything figured out. But you know, I made a, I made, I made a deal with God when I was in Santa Cruz, actually, and uh, and I said, I said, God, make me happier. If you make me happier, you can make me dumber. Not that I was very smart in the first place, but I, I was like, make me dumber, but make me happier. And then I, he. God really kept up on that deal. I feel like it's been, uh, I feel like slowly eroding intelligence a bit, but happier. You you feel like happiness in this case is a direct result of maybe losing some brain cells? <laughs> Could be. I, don't know. I mean, I don't, and I don't, I don't know. Like I just noticed, yeah, I'm having a hard time remembering words, just weird stuff that, um, I mean like everyday words the other day, I thought, I thought, what's what's the name of that thing where people are like bidding on something and shoot, what's that called? It's like eBay, and it took me 15 minutes to remember the word auction. Just that's happening more and more, which is fine. It could be age, it could be technology, it could be the fact that like whether or not we know it, we're all pretty depressed over. I mean, the, the last the last year, the last four years, let's be honest, but specifically the last year, I do think is like at least temporarily. My memory is just generally, not just last year, but I'm, I'm, my memory is really, really going. And I think memory is so tied to general intelligence that like, yeah, I definitely see a decrease in. I got to get back to this pact that you that made with God. I don't like, don't know how literally to take what you're, I, I don't know you, you know, <laughs> like we've been talking for about an hour. <laughs> I don't know how true. literally to take that. I don't know how literally to take that idea. I mean, is that like, are you, are you talking about actually just sort of like, you know, praying or spiritually commuting with a greater power and saying that, or is that just sort of like a kind of a, you know, symbolic. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't actually in church. I, you know, I was just one night. I just kind of had this idea. So this is a thing. This is a thing that one day. Yeah. It was just kind of like, I would like to be happier 
And if you want to, you know, make me dumb, as long as I'm happy, then you can go ahead and do that. And I know that we have currently been talking about how I often say untrue things in interviews. So I can understand how, you know, but it's not even that it's just really interesting idea. And, and it's, it's not ego death, but it's, it is this idea of kind of letting go of something that perhaps you thought sort of defined you to some degree and realizing that maybe it wasn't a consequential part of being happy for you. You know what it could be that I just thought about this talking now from this particular conversation. And I would like to say I didn't consider myself intelligent in the first place, but how this trade-off may have happened might have gone back to playing D&D when I was 14. In your scores, we have intelligence score and you have, we don't have a happiness score, but you know what I mean? So it could have gone back to that. Like, hey, you, you know, I'm at I'm at 15 intelligence. You can you can knock that down to, well, it's probably more 12 average. You probably knock that, well, it's probably 12 and a half. You can knock my 12 and a half intelligence down to 10, but this happiness score, you got to give me two and a half points on the happiness score. Let's pretend for a moment that, that there there is, that your HP is your your happiness. Oh yeah, that's percentage. good. So I was talking to the dungeon master in the sky, basically. At this point in your life, where would you say your, your happy meter is at? Happy meter's gone up. Happy meter's gone up. I like this whole D&D thing. But although my experience level is probably not that high. You know why? Because my, my, I have a multi-character class. That's why. So it takes the more experience points you get in, you know, it takes you longer to go up in the levels. So it's hard to be a, a thief fighter magic user. 